Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone bonus episode, episode one Redux, where everybody knows your name. This episode is a little different from our usual ones in that we're revisiting the passage of the book that we read the first episode, mostly just to see what's changed in our understanding and ourselves. So without further ado, simple disclaimer this time, we are not affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher Daw Books. We are also encouraging everyone to just be nice. Yeah, so this segment here, we're going to be talking about the prologue through chapter two of The Name of the Wind, which we've already covered before. But we've gotten better since then. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) We've gotten different since then. But yeah, so we just kind of wanted to go back see what we found out in the interim, and see what we can do going forward. It's always interesting to see where we've come from. That all being said, while normally we do a recap that one of us hastily puts together the day of, I thought that this time we could go back and I could give you the recap that I wrote, oh, so long ago. Because we initially started recording before your birthday last year. Yeah, that's right. It's been over a year at this point. Just because we released our first episode in December doesn't mean that that's the first time we recorded. Believe it or not, that first episode took a long time to try to get right, and I redid it at least once. Just getting up to the point where we were ready to actually make this a thing took us a while. Yeah. Let's see. We originally had the idea on our move down to Oregon from Western Washington, which was spring of 2019. Yep. And we didn't release our first episode until December of 2019. During that time period, we were making a number of back and forth drives between the greater Seattle area and the greater Portland area. One of the ways that we passed the time on those drives was listening to podcasts and audiobooks. One podcast in particular that we listened to a lot was Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And one book that we listened to a lot were the Kingkiller Chronicles, specifically The Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear. And so as these two things started blending in our heads, I remember on one particular up and down weekend that you took by yourself, you came back and you were just like, Will, I know what we have to do. (laughs) I actually remember calling you. And I never call you. Right. I was initially a little worried about that. (laughs) And saying, hey, I have an idea I need to talk to you about. (laughs) You were really excited about this idea, and I'm glad you were. Well, ultimately, it's because at the time, I was having a really hard time finding a Kingkiller Chronicle deep dive podcast the way that I could find a lot of, like, Wheel of Time podcasts. Shout out to all of our Wheel of Time Twitter follower people. A lot of Harry Potter podcasts. I found one 
just one King Killer podcast. And it was, I believe, The Duke and Duchess. They're really good. They've moved on to other books. Highly recommend that you look into them. I have since found Page of the Wind and a couple other podcasts that I also enjoy. And other ones have sprung up since we've started. I love all of the nerdy book podcasts. I just... <sighs> but at the time, I felt like there was kind of a void in that one particular fandom that I really wanted more discussion with. I was hoping that it would lead to more people wanting to discuss the books with us. So far, that hasn't panned out that much. And the few times that we've attempted to have crossover episodes with other people, we have completely screwed up our audio. <laughs> there's only like maybe one or two that is available to ever listen to ever. Yeah, we've got to put our cards on the table here. We're novices when it comes to the audio side of things. <laughs> if you hadn't noticed, I've gotten better. I really have. I know that some of the levels in some of the episodes are pretty awful. And I know that <laughs> it took a while before I got my process down. But all that being said, I know I just a little while ago promised you that we would go back over the recap that was the first one ever, but we got into tangents. This episode is going to be different. It's going to be a lot of tangents. These are meant to be more like a director's commentary almost, where we're not necessarily going to go through blow by blow. We'll just kind of have a freeform conversation that may be tangentially related to the book. All right. Are we going to bother timing this? No, there's no raspberries on the line for you. Okay, well, that's good. I just was going to check. Also, in terms of things that have changed dramatically since we started, at the beginning, I made extensive notes. And now I highlight the crap out of the books, but I don't really make any notes. And I think we're better for it. I find that hosting this podcast is a lot like being a dungeon master. And the more thoroughly I make notes and story plans, the harder it is for me to deal with unruly player characters who take everything off the rails. So I have found I do better if I just look at things that I think are important and cool, and then mostly just leave space for us to improvise. <laughs> I think it works out a lot better when we just freeform the conversation and go through it from the book rather than trying to make all of these notes that take us hours. And then I feel like I'm beholden to the notes, which I think the first couple episodes kind of sound like that. Man, when I said tangents, I meant tangents. We are going to ADD up this bench. I swear. No. Uh, all right. For real, though, the recap of the section. Go for it. The story opens in a silent inn, the Waystone, which is devoid of music, conversation, and anything else you'd expect from an inn in a fantasy novel. We are introduced to the red-haired innkeeper and, in some of the book's most poetic prose, learn that he is waiting to die. We're then introduced to the Waystone's normal crowd of five patrons. One is telling stories to the others. Halfway through the stories, a man rushes in, carrying a huge dead spider creature that he says has killed his horse. Everyone but the innkeeper, who calls himself Coat, thinks that it is a demon. Later that night, we learn that Coat actually... 
Sorry, it looks like I put a period there. I didn't. <laughs> Later that night, we learned that Coat actually knows what this is. A scrailing. Information that freaks out his assistant Bast. In the next chapter, we meet Chronicler, a scribe who is being civilly robbed by a group of ex-soldiers. Oh my gosh, I needed to learn to just truncate. <laughs> oh, going back a year is just, it's weird. Yeah, one thing that I came back to as I was reading through the section was, this is basically the cast of Cheers. I mean, you have Coat or Quoth in the Sam Malone role as the recovering alcoholic slash musician in this case. So I'm going to point something out to you. You have made this analogy before. I believe I kept it in on the podcast, and now I want to see if you have kept it the same. All right, so Quoth. He is a recovering music addict in this case, but he's still working at an inn, which is a parallel to Sam Malone, who is a recovering alcoholic working as a barkeeper. There's the irony there. You have his junior assistant slash student, Woody, in this case, Bast, who's strangely naive about the world, and he's from a different place. You have Chronicler, who's basically Fraser Crane, who is worldly and has seen everything, who knows how people work, supposedly, but is also sometimes a wise fool. Jake is definitely a Cliff Clavin. He just sits there trying to tell everyone what the Chandrian actually are. And of course, he's probably wrong. But that doesn't stop him from speaking as if he's an expert. Then we've got Old Cobb, who is pretty definitely Norm. He kind of holds court around the bar. And then we have Graham, who's basically Coach. Kind of grizzled. He's been around. Has a dark worldview. <laughs> so, I get the sense that Quoth has secretly always wanted to be at Cheers. Like, from the very beginning, all of his kindest people that he's met are innkeepers or barkeeps, and he seems to always have a soft spot for them. But anyway, that's just my weird little tangent there. So in our last episode of the read-through, we went over the parallels between the epilogue and the prologue. I think that pretty much covered it. So let's get into... Cheers. <laughs> the first story that we hear is from Old Cobb, who has appointed himself the storyteller. And he's telling the story about Taberlin the Great. And I want to point out something. When he started telling stories about Quoth, he jumbled them all to bits. <laughs> and it was pointed out by a few sources that it was so, so, so wrong even as he was correcting Chronicler. So he's telling this story about Taberlin the Great, and I'm just like, what stories are being Frankensteined into this story? Because we all know at this point that this story is not accurate. It's how the oral tradition works. I mean, you think about stories of King Arthur and everything, and it really depends on which author you're reading, which tradition they're coming from, right? I guess you're right. When I was a teenager, I mean, I'd seen The Sword in the Stone a whole bunch of times. I'd also heard stories and legends of King Arthur. And like, none of the ones that I read or heard had anything to do with morphing into animals. But that was in the movie. And then I had the opportunity as a senior in high school to choose from a collection of books instead of just 
you have to read this one book this semester. It's like, hi, this month we are giving you an option of four books. Please choose from them. And I chose the longest one, which was The Once in Future King. And I'm like, whoa, that's where that weird Dash. story came from. I realized that different stories are going to have different bits and pieces, especially the older the story is. But what's interesting to me is how many things got mashed into the story about Quoth that may or may not have actually been something that was originally a story about Quoth. And so I'm wondering if any of these stories are a mashing up of other stories. Specifically, if Elodin being locked in the rookery was somehow shoved into this story, no doors or windows, and he had to break the stone. And the other possibility is that Elodin, knowing the story and also being kind of cheeky himself, took that as his inspiration. <laughs> right. So we don't know which one is what. And I think that that's an interesting thing to look at from the outside with a perspective of the whole book. And the other thing that I look at is it's very difficult to call any of these things authoritative. So like going back to Arthurian legend, in some variants, Morgana is one of the chief antagonists. And in others, she's actually one of his chief allies. Sometimes Merlin is his chief counselor and sometimes he's this fiendish manipulator. Um, in some accounts, Lancelot is a tragic hero who's a badass, but is kind of a fool. In others, he's cowardly and almost villainous in his own right. Throughout all of it, you see these different sides of these characters that aren't really authoritative. These are just how different people have spun them. They're not historical figures, and how they differ from one to the other is no more authoritative than any other. Some are just older. Same with Grimm's fairy tales, right? They change from the original recorded version through the versions that we read and see in movies and children's books. I will say, though, with that, they weren't written in English, correct? Not originally, no. So you also have somebody translating these. And depending on how ethical the translation is, words can mean different things. If you choose the one that's nice and floofy versus the one that's dark and awful, you got a different story. Yeah, it changes dramatically whether the author is being poetic or trying to be literal in their translation as well. Some try to preserve a poetic flavor while others try and preserve a literal meaning. And those two things don't necessarily always go together. The act of translation is just as much art as it is science. So yeah, it's no wonder that people have different versions of these sort of world stories. One thing I'd like to point out in the way that we have grown and been different. We were so tied at the beginning to the idea of looking at it through this lens as having to find every instance of where that lens could be applied. I think that we've done a decent job of keeping the lens part and trying to read through that literary lens and bring it to the podcast. But I don't think we're so strictly adherent to pointing out every place that that could be used. Yeah, we're not writing an expository paper here. Thank God. <laughs> and I think that might have helped make the podcast better as we've gone along. I would agree with that.
I mean, I used to have to write expository papers in real time at school, and, oh, it was dry. Yeah, less interesting. Yeah. To continue on, we get some of our first mentions of the Chandrian and how Blue Flame is one of their signs, setting up what's to come. In this whole 722-page book, the Chandrian are hardly mentioned, really. Yeah, they're kind of a mysterious force that people seem to acknowledge as a thing, but no one wants to talk about. Yeah, but they're also not this huge big bad that keeps showing up for exposition every couple of chapters, and they're not going out of their way to manipulate how we see the world, and we don't go back and learn their overarching plans or plots. They probably don't give a crap about Quoth. They're kind of like the shark in Jaws. <laughs> like, they're just a force of nature. They do their thing, they show up, and they cause trouble, and then they disappear. They're not evil, but they're evil. And there is definitely a difference in this story that is all about Quoth's life with them as a influence-ish than a lot of books that I have read or a lot of movies that we have watched where you get a cutaway back to the evil so-and-so doing evil things. And I think part of that is a function of the structure of this story. All of this is Quoth's story as told by Quoth. And so his perspective is pretty well locked in on what's happening in Quoth's life at this instant. He almost never breaks away from Quothland. Like, if this were a video game, the camera would be locked fully on his shoulder. And you wouldn't get cutscenes. Exactly. <laughs> and then we get our first taste of something not right with the scrailing. The description of the gigantic spider that's bigger than a wagon wheel is still blah. And one of the characters even says, I don't like spiders. And I'm like, I don't like spiders. I'm really glad that the spiders only really happen at the beginning of the book. Yeah, and they never really get mentioned again. Well, that's because they don't appear in Quoth's history. Yet. That we know of. So one thing to talk about. The first time, the very first time I read any part of this book, I wasn't in love with it. The very first time that I read it, it was on your ancient iPad, and you handed it to me and said that this was pretty good. But I don't think you'd even finished it. Yeah, it took me a little while to get into it. I think that the framing device itself, while necessary after a fashion, maybe was a little bit of a barrier to entry for a lot of people on these books. And I'm not just saying that because we had problems getting into it. I'm also saying that because I follow Kingkiller Chronicle on Instagram just as a topic. And some people, they're talking about how their boyfriend handed them this book and said it's the best thing ever. And then they tried to read like 45 pages of it and they're like, I really don't like the characters. And I'm like, yeah, but the first 45 pages of the book do not cover the actual story. I think that while the beginning and the framing device and all of that has a more lived-in feel, the part of this book that makes people come back to it over and over and over again is Quoth telling the story about Quoth. Yeah, the framing device sets up the Chandrian, and it also 
kind of leaves us with this mystery of the scrailing that is awful, but I think is mostly a way of trying to illustrate that Kvothe has powers, that he's capable of doing these heroic feats, because he does wind up going and fighting a whole bunch of them, and they kind of feel a little like pointy, razor-sharp, crawly versions of the Nazgul. A little bit. They kind of strike me as the first enemies that you fight in a tutorial level in a video game, where they're maybe not things that you're ever going to see again, but they're there to hint at a larger world beyond just generally medieval fantasy. Speaking of a larger world, I was going to, and this is where my planning kind of went out the window, look at the map at the beginning of our 10th anniversary edition and see if it's any different than the map that we have at the beginning of this one that was published before <laughs> Wise Man's Fear came out. But I didn't. Do you have your iPad? Yeah. Can we see if any of the places mentioned in the framing device so far even show up on the map yet? Yeah, let's take a look here. So... I know... Noir is there, and the mountains are there, and also later on Chronicler is going to talk about Treya. But I don't know where any of these places are, and the map is no use. Yeah, so the places that are in the map here, we have Raelian in Shald. We've got in the Commonwealth, Hollowfell, the University, Imre, Tarbian, Anilin, then we've got the Synthesis, the Reft, and Yul. Then we've got the Great Stone Road, and through Atour and the Atourian Empire. In Modeg, you've got Kershayan. The Free City of Tinue. Then in Ventus, you've got Renere. The Eld, the Small Kingdoms, the Stormwall Mountains, and Edemre. And then, oh, Junpui. I found Junpui. <laughs> but not a whole lot. Right, so we have no idea where in the Four Corners our current story is taking place. We also don't know that this place is actually called Temerant. Yeah, it's all pretty mysterious. Are you just looking at your copy off of your book? Yeah. Have there been any updated ones? Does Google have anything updated? Let's look it up here. <laughs> A riveting instance of Will Googling things. Okay, here's one... Looks like just a color version. Same things. Same things. I am not seeing nowhere listed anywhere. I have one from a different perspective, where north is to the left. Still looking for where nowhere is, but it's a lot more filled in. Nope. Also, they've respelled Kershayan. That's not it. I think the opening map is almost a goof on the classic sort of Lord of the Rings style epic fantasy where every big doorstop tome starts off with this map that tells you where every place that gets mentioned is. And instead, he starts off with this great big map that shows you a whole bunch of places that are never mentioned in that opening first set of pages. And the only places mentioned don't show up at all. I would agree with you, sir. It's almost just a parody of your Wheel of Times, your Lord of the Rings, your Dunes, all of these that have really detailed world maps. To continue on with 
our brief overview of the story. We get that big piece of action, person bursting in with mushroom spider razor thingy, and a whole bunch of cryptic, I swear I know what to do with the thing, no one kept a piece of it, fast, you're, you know, whatever. I know what I'm doing, don't try to be the teacher, you are my student. I'm going to go very quickly over this. You've already heard us really dissect the crap out of this. That's not what you're here for. But I think the opening here does a good job of showing that there will be questions that are not going to get answers, at least not quickly. There was discussion on whether or not Quoth is a Mary Sue character. And in a lot of ways, I think if you're going to make that assumption, you're only putting that on kid Quoth, because obviously adult Quoth is having a hard time finding himself. I maintain that he has renamed himself Coat, and that because names have power, he has named himself a simple innkeeper, and therefore he is one. And it takes a lot for that simple innkeeper to rename himself as Quoth in order to be able to do these feats, to do these heroic acts, and overcome the spell that he put on himself. And I'll also note that he's telling his own life story, which means that this is his life story as he sees it specifically. That's not necessarily to say it's accurate, and he does believe it's the most important story because it's the one he's telling. So I just wanted to point out, he doesn't get to that part in the part that we're reviewing right now. And while I think that that's valuable to kind of think about, I want to get through the couple chapters so that we can have a more open discussion about the entire book as a whole. The part of this that is more interesting to me is how Quoth goes through his, or Coat goes through his standard routines because while they don't seem to accomplish anything material they reinforce his identity as coat the thing that always gets me is the bit where he goes back to his bottles those bottles seem to have a connection to his past almost like he's bottled up these elements and relationships that made him quoth the legendary hero or hell just quoth the student the friend the lover, what have you. He always seems to be more himself when he is polishing these bottles, and he seems to look at them lovingly in a way that you wouldn't look at just bottles of liquor. I wonder if they are kind of the essences of his friends, of his family. I also wonder if, like in The Wizard of Oz, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there is kind of happening... If, while we've said the characters in the framing device really aren't the characters that are in the rest of the story, what if they are? What if he's protecting his friends by either keeping their essence in a bottle on the back of his bar and has maybe wiped their memory or wiped their essence from themselves and has renamed them? This is one of my bat sure. crazy theories, by the way. <laughs> it's an interesting one. I mean, that almost makes him seem weirdly villainous, too. <laughs> it could. That all being said, 
Just because you think you have to protect someone doesn't mean you really do have to. I recently re-listened to the beginning of the book, mostly just the framing device. And there are some odd parallels, like Minette and Old Cobb, like the blonde and the brunette people that come into the inn later on and look at Kvothe and go, wait, I know you. You know, I secretly think that they are at least meant to hearken back to Will and Sim. They definitely are at least literary parallels. One is fair with blonde hair and the other one is dark with dark hair. Very lightly sketched versions of Will and Sim. It makes sense. Anyway, there's reference to there not being a moon. There's reference to Quoth hiding from the stars, shuttering himself up in his inn. The Quoth we meet at this point is clearly a broken man. And the central mystery is, how did he break? And so far, we haven't gotten to that yet. But we also get some hints that perhaps the encounter with the Skraling was maybe something that Bass might have um, engineered. I get the idea that anything that happens to Kvothe or Coat at this point, Bast has some strings to pull for, like, everything. He definitely seems to want back the Kvothe of the heroic stories. And anything that seems to bring that element back seems to bring Bast some measure of satisfaction. Like, you can see when he hears, oh, the Skraling, oh no. I mean, there's never just one. I mean, you, you better be sure, right? <laughs> Though he is horrified by the idea that Kvothe has kept a piece. Or at least, quote, horrified. I think there's definitely some of that quote there. <laughs> Knowing what we know about Bast from the final segment makes some of the things that he says here carry a little more weight. Also ring a little bit false. What do you think about the theories of there being either a loving or familial relationship between Bast and Quoth? Yeah, I wholly support that. The relationship between them, I think also harkens back to that relationship that Quoth has with Ben. I think there's a part of Quoth that wants to be that to Bast just the way that Ben was to him. Now, when I said that, I mean, do you think that it's just a student and teacher bond? Or do you think that there is a more romantic feel to it or a potential, you know, father and son feel to it? Because I've seen all those theories. So I'm not sure. I think there is room for those to be true, but I don't think that they have to be true. What we do know is that their bond is a lot deeper than just this guy's his teacher, this guy's the student. You can have that really deep relationship with someone who's teaching you, but it's rare. A lot of people have that one teacher who really made a huge difference to them, but that teacher may not feel the same way about you. Like you may be just one of their many students that they had over the course of their career. This feels different than that, and it feels deeper than that. Part of that, I think, is lived experience together and shared experience. But we haven't seen that yet. But I think there is love there. What kind of love? You can only speculate, but I don't think you're wrong for picking any one of those. I think that whether it's true or not, you can see whatever kind of relationship you need to see in there. Some people need to see 
a romantic relationship there because that's important to them and that speaks to them and that's good and that's real some people might see a parental relationship because that's what they need to see and that's also real and that's also good either way what you're seeing is two people who i think really do genuinely care about one another and no matter what reason that might be that's real and that's important just to wrap up that particular chapter a lot of people in the town are purposefully sticking their head in the sand, believing that, oh, well, it was only those six people that saw this thing. There's no such thing as demons. We're safe. We're fine. Everything can go the way that it's going to go. Some things suck, like having multiple taxes levied on us in a year, not having the right crops might sink us. Crazy Martin is mentioned and there's a little more detail in the lightning tree about him. And I think that he might be one of those characters that Pat likes, but has no real place for. Yeah. This whole segment kind of reminds me of the Shire portions of Lord of the Rings. They represent the mundane world. It's kind of cloistered, cut off from the wider world. The comings and goings of the higher powers barely register. So as far as they're concerned, what does it have to do with the price of butter? That's the question that they're constantly asking because that's what they see every day. Well, speaking of the price of butter, also the price of sugar and the price of salt and the lack of things coming over from across the mountains, even though this is the time for trading. Man, inflation must be like a huge thing because... Throughout the whole story, we're lucky to see Quoth with more than like a talent or two that he himself has earned. And he works his tail off trying to get money. Where in this case, 10 talents for like a thing of salt? Is that what I remember reading? <laughs> okay, so I remember correctly 10 and I remember correctly talents, but I did not remember them in the same thing i completely forked that up it was 10 pennies for salt 10 talents would have been nuts 10 pennies for salt and two talents for coffee Whew. that's quite the markup there yeah i was like that sounds wrong well yeah i mean like that would have been like his entire quarter's tuition at the university that part there really resonates with 2020 as we're seeing it now what with the COVID situation, supply chains have gotten all wonky. And so some things in the grocery store cost more than they used to. You know, things that we used to take for granted that, oh yeah, I can just go pick up a thing of this at the grocery store. It'll just be there. Something as simple as salt or sugar. Or toilet paper. Right. Now you see people having runs on these things. You see price gouging. I don't know that I would have said having runs on these things after I said toilet paper. I think we leave that in there. <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs> but that does seem to actually track. And, you know, in a society where more stuff has to be imported, you're going to see more of that. Larger events in the world have ripple effects that go out to even these small middle of nowhere towns. Moving on, we get the first look at the mercenary who will eventually come in and be 
thwacked to death by Aaron the Smith's apprentice at the end of the book. He seems like a bad person, but he doesn't seem like someone who deserves to be zombified and smacked to death. Yeah, he seems like he is someone who, through circumstance, has been forced to make his own way in the world. And when honest, mutually beneficial ways have been exhausted, is forced to turn predatory. This whole small chapter, I think, is meant as a way to show that Chronicler is clever. That he has contingencies that he thinks about things a little more deeply, a little more four or five steps down the road. And maybe that he is inquisitive and questioning of the surface story. I think it's also telling that while he's not pleased to be robbed, he also doesn't seem to hold too much judgment for the highwayman because he understands that people who are turning to crime, as this person is, are not doing so out of a sense that this is what they think is right. They're doing so oftentimes out of a sense of desperation or disillusionment with a society that hasn't made a place for them within its bounds. I think there's something to be said about when society takes, I think, particularly soldiers and gives them a particular set of skills, namely the capacity to do violence, and then discards them when they're no longer useful, we cannot be surprised if they get desperate. You know, and a crime of desperation, I regard completely differently from a crime of greed or passion. Stealing a loaf of bread to feed your family versus obtaining a gun illegally and going across state lines to do something awful. That's as much as I am going to go into that one. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, so much the better for you. Yeah, and... I think that what we're seeing is a series of wars that we don't have a sense of what they're about or why they exist. We have these words of rebellions. Again, we don't know what they're about or why they've sprung up. And especially if there's a civil war, like it seems that we're seeing here, that capacity for disillusionment is high. I think Chronicler is well aware of his privilege and that he's aware that he does not have to partake in these on either side. And he's not going to go out of his way to judge someone who was fighting for the establishment and got disillusioned and was cast out on their own. He moves on. He pulls money out of his shoe to try to make it seem like he is not hiding anything. He wants to make it look like he has all his cards on his table but he most definitely does not. And I think that that carries on throughout the supposed day and a half that we get to know him. I also get the sense when they re-encounter the now zombified mercenary, he's more upset that his shirt got ripped than that it was stolen in the first place. I think there was a part of him who was thinking, well, at least it will now go to someone who probably needs a shirt. Oh, he's grumbly, though, in the beginning, too. He's grumbly, but I think he also knows that if he's too accommodating about everything, someone might get suspicious. True. Like, there is an element of theatrical grumbliness to it. So now that we've re-examined the beginning of the book, 
to take the book as a whole, what are some of the things that you now see differently after we have bit by bitted the book over a year? So I think I've come to appreciate Quoth a bit more as a person. He's still an idiot. Absolutely. He's still an idiot, but I think I have a little more compassion for him. We've seen him deal with some really difficult loss and trauma, and we've seen him make mistakes. We've seen him own those mistakes and recognize that they were as such. I think he is a very flawed character. I think seeing Kvothe own his flaws as an adult is one of the things that gives me a little more compassion for him. I mean, I can think back to when I was a kid and recognize that a lot of my beliefs and attitudes and worldviews were messed up. Those were shaped by how we grew up and just the general way that as a kid you oftentimes don't question the privilege that you have. You also don't question what you are told. Especially if it was told to you by someone that you love. As we see in the case of Ben, Ben tells him all kinds of things and Kvothe doesn't really question them. He just wants to know more. And there's a real sense of love and affection there, really just between Kvothe and his entire troop, which is that found family that he's searching for a way to recreate. I think one of the things that is most tragic to me is that he has the opportunity to build one such family with his friends at the university and he keeps them at such an arm's length that he never really lets them into that part of his life the way they clearly could. I keep wanting him to be a better friend to them. I also know that maybe he's not in a space where he can. I also keep wanting him to be more open and less afraid to tell people about his past, about what he went through. The people that he is friends with don't know that his troop was killed in such a horrific, traumatizing manner. Now, it was a few years ago, and it's not like I think he needs to spill his entire life story to people that he doesn't trust, but he builds a bond with them and he doesn't ever tell them about what happened ever. He never trusts them with that information. He thinks he's going to be ridiculed. He never builds a trust bond with any adults ever in the way that I was very close to a lot of my teachers at DigiPen, especially, but even before then. And the way that I could ask them about their expertise, about the things that they are very knowledgeable about. He has this wealth of knowledge represented in these people that run the school he goes to, and he won't ask them. He has this wealth of knowledge of these people that came from far and wide to the school that he is now friends with, and he never talks to them. He never talks to them about these things that are so core to him. He never talks to them about these things that he needs to find out more information about, like his central drive as a person is to 
find out more about these things. He expresses that he was a curious person, but he never shows that he was actually willing to go out of his, I'm the smartest person in this whole entire university bubble to find out more. He's also in a state where he doesn't even think about how to, like even just hint that, yeah, I just got done living on the streets. Even that element there, which would probably give people a lot more grace for him. The fact that he endured so much trauma on the streets of Tarbian and doesn't even talk about it to anybody, doesn't even hint at it. As far as his friends can tell, he just mysteriously showed up at the university one day and knew a bunch of stuff. There's this romanticizing of not asking for help and not using your past hardships to get future aid, which I think is BS, to be honest. I think that it's terrible to encourage people to just stufu and... It goes to that whole I can do it myself bootstraps mentality. His story wouldn't be so tortured if he would talk to people. And I also think it really says something that the only way that someone could pull themselves up by their bootstraps is essentially to have superhuman abilities, as Quoth is presented to have in terms of his intellect, his musical ability, and his ability to just make stuff up on the fly. That's something that ought to point you to the absurdity of that notion that just anybody could do that. It also points to the illusory nature of meritocracies. I think one of the things that we kind of come to see is Elder Quoth is a little more disillusioned with the nature of society to the point where he's effectively dropped out. And he's dropped off the map even. So much so that literally we don't know where on the map he is. And I think that disillusionment is really telling because even as you got the sense that there were parts of the social structure of the Four Corners that he didn't like, he still played along with them and was willing to use them when it benefited him. And at this point, I think he's moved past that to have a more full view of the costs of society. As we are running out of time, because we do have other commitments besides just recording today, I want to kind of move into a little more of the procedural bits of the podcast, kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and talk about how we decided to make the structure of our podcast. Obviously, we want to talk about the Kingkiller Chronicle, and obviously we wanted an excuse to reread this book and to get into all of the nooks and crannies and make some friends along the way. And honestly, hit us up on Twitter at WaystonePod. We love hearing from our fans. We love talking more about the Kingkiller Chronicle. If you've got a good podcast for us to listen to, hit us up. We'd love to listen to more. But the way that we chose to do some of our structure is very much modeled off of Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. We wanted to go into the book, kind of look at things somewhat chapter by chapter. It's not strictly chapter by chapter because the chapters are widely varying in length half a page, 20 pages, something. So we broke it into chunks, trying to talk about things that seem like they're more of a vignette. We also kind of cribbed that for Nemo's part from said other podcast, where they look and highlight a character through kind of a blessings 
mentality or blessings lens. We're a little more analytical, a little more into philosophy, especially you. Yeah, typically in a lot of universities, philosophy and religion get lumped into the same department. To the outside world, they seem to be one thing, but within such departments, I can tell you, being a product of one, it's basically two sides of a coin that hate each other. <laughs> so we took the idea of the frenemos, which is this concept that Aristotle uses to talk about how you can figure out wisdom. Aristotle doesn't believe in this platonic bullshit about how there are pure and eternal forms of goodness or whatever. He believes that wisdom has to be practical, which means it has to be practiced. And the only way you can find it is through experience and sometimes somebody else's because nobody can live forever. And if you had to just rely solely on your own experiences to figure it out, you'd never get anywhere. So he says, look at someone else. Look at their story. How can you make your story like theirs? So he looks for people who are modeling this over the course of their lives. And how do you model your own life? And it's sort of that in the act of doing is a becoming. And the final end result, as far as he's concerned, is supposed to be this lifelong state of eudaimonia or happiness. But it's only something that can be judged by the time you're dead. Classic Aristotle line is call no man happy till he's dead because in his estimation, that state of eudaimonia could be ruined in your dying breath if you discover something truly terrifying that upends everything. That your life has to be judged on its whole, that your life is a project of becoming up until its very end and that this whole notion of are you a good person can't really be something that anyone can judge at any given time. You can only take a look at a snapshot and say, at this point, maybe we're okay, but that doesn't tell you about the entire story. A lot of stuff happens out of frame, and a lot of stuff happens before and after the shutter opens and closes. So anyway, we liked this idea of looking for models of wisdom and practical wisdom specifically within the story, people doing the right thing for the right reasons and exhibiting this concept of virtue. Now, whether these people are always practically wise, well, almost never. Each one of these characters goes through periods where they are wise as well as periods where they're foolish. But these models, I think, are still really useful. Speaking of the love of philosophy and how that just ties with us so much, you will notice that when we swear, we use particular words to cover them up. Part of that is because I don't want to have to click a little box saying that there's explicit language. And part of that is because we are very big fans of The Good Place. And since they can't swear, they have particular words that go over those swear words. It's something that has really stuck with me over time where sometimes you get a show that is so clever that the act of strategically bleeping or blurring or censoring things becomes funnier than the uncensored version. Like Arrested Development is one of my all-time favorite comedy shows. And one thing that struck me was the network version that was bleeped was actually funnier than the uncensored cut that you'd see on DVD. Just because there's that <laughs> sense that, <laughs> that it would just break something. 
or looking at parks and recreation where they would have these strategic camera blurs over certain things. And that just made it even funnier to me. <laughs> you know? Just the suggestion was funnier than any actual thing that was shown. Because your mind fills in all of that stuff and that just means that someone thought enough to actually add that on there. It makes it so much funnier to me. And at the end of the day, I go for the laugh. Yeah, I also think it's funnier when we hear your voice over me. <laughs> because let's face it, I'm the one that swears the most. Yeah, usually. <laughs> but I really love that you thought of the Fernimos as something that we can point out a character that we want to highlight. I'm the one who instigated the interesting fact of the week. I enjoy learning. I enjoy learning a lot about science, which is why a lot of my facts are science-based. I get a lot of these from places like SciShow on YouTube, a PBS channel called It's Okay to Be Smart, The Origin of Everything. I also look at places like Mental Floss and other kind of, oh, I didn't know that sources. I like learning about things that I had no idea existed or were historically like, oh, people used to purposefully drink lead. Who knew? I picked my first one from It's Okay to Be Smart, which, if you will remember, is that blue butterflies are not actually blue. They're not pigmented blue. They reflect blue, much like blue eyes reflect blue or the atmosphere reflects blue. And that's why our sky is blue. It's one of the core questions I had as a kid of, of why is the sky blue? And I encourage everyone to watch every episode of SciShow that has been on for the last however many years that they've been on. It will take you a while. Sorry about that. But I just find the whole idea of Elodin telling his students that they have to give him interesting facts to be just so engaging. I really loved that as well. Elodin's class on naming is really about learning to observe the world around you and to be curious about the world around you. That's why we got inspired by it. The things that always fascinate me most tend to be around that axis of history and science. I studied history a lot in high school and college. I minored in history. And history is what tells us how we got to where we are now. And I think a fuller understanding is important. I also like finding historical things that maybe don't get covered a lot in your typical textbooks. History as a sum total is a lot more than just names and dates, battles, treaties, you know, what have you. It's about discoveries. It's about relationships. It's about people. And it's about people who occupy all strata of society, not just the governing class. So like I looked a lot at Damn Interesting. That's uh, one of my favorite spots. I also look a lot at Paleo Future on Gizmodo, just because I'm really fascinated by the ways we thought the future would be in the past. Because those tell us a lot about the societal engineering that take place. I will say recently on Stephen Colbert's Quarantine While, the platypus glowing in the dark <laughs> was featured. And I'm right. They do fluoresce under black light. No mention of glow in the dark. Okay. But it is absolutely 
interesting to me just seeing more about our world. I love finding new and interesting things. Like when I was a kid, fun fact, I for the longest time hated any book that was fiction. I read exclusively science books and history books. That's all I wanted to read about. I didn't want to read a story. I didn't want to read about something that happened to some fictional person. I wanted to read facts. And thus, your hatred of whimsy was born. Yeah, I hated fairy tales. I was just all about science books. I want to read about dinosaurs. I want to read about space. I want to read about wild animals. I don't want to read about romance. I don't want to read about Three Little Pigs. I mean, granted, I wanted to read fantasy novels, not romance novels. But I also loved dinosaurs in space. I didn't want people who pretended to go to space. I wanted real people who were actually in space. <laughs> Darn it, that's not seven words. Anyway, you know, how the sausage is made. We do need to get this done. So I think at that point I'm going to cut off all of this wonderful information about us and kind of revisit our seven words. You actually had seven words from this section that were really good in addition to the first ones that you picked. Yeah, let me pull those up here real quick. The initial ones that you picked were the last part of a sentence, and I maintain that it is a mild cheat, but it was one that we used a few times over where it wasn't just a sentence. It might have been part of a sentence and it might have been multiple sentences. We lived with it. That one was, lovers have better eyesight than great scholars. The one I found was, I tend to make my own fun. Which I think is less of a cheat and also quite awesome because it's also by Bast, full circle. And it kind of speaks to what we've had to do. Now, speaking of our seven words, we end the show with, here's to one more day above the roses then to one more day above the roses. That was my seven words from the beginning. And I think we should continue to say that and be thankful, especially right now. Thanksgiving is next week, this week, something. It's probably last week when I put this out. Anyway, to one more day above the roses, it's a reminder to be thankful, but it's also a reminder to do what you can to remain above the roses. There's a pandemic. I'm not going to lie. I've had a lot of anxiety and a lot of worries. We chose not to go anywhere for Thanksgiving. We have family that we love that is within one car ride. We don't have to get out of the car. We don't have to take any massive risks. But we've still made the decision that we need to model our own behavior in a way that we would want to see others model it. It's hard. We love our family. We want to be with our family. I'd really love to meet your brother's new puppy. I'm glad that we did get to meet our little nibbling because we took one day, no stops, no visits out, and we got tested for COVID before going to meet our little four-month-old niece. But even then, I think that as cases get higher, as things are looking worse. And as there is a vaccine on the horizon, it would be the dumbest possible thing in the world to trip over the finish line. Yeah, I would encourage people to show concern and love 
for your family and your friends. Do what you can to stay in as much as possible. Don't go on a plane. Don't go on a train. Don't use mass, don't use mass transit. If you want to show someone that you love them and want to model practical wisdom, I know that what we're doing is choosing our future over our present. I encourage anyone and everyone to do the same. Yeah, I would rather have many more Thanksgivings over the coming years than have this be the last one. So on that note, we love you all. We want every single one of you to continue to be here, to be able to listen to us ramble about books we love. Starting in two weeks, we're going to be reading The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern as a little interlude so that I can catch up. It will be every other week. It will be less of a deep dive and more our love of books and nerd and geek out and all that stuff. We want to see you all there. Please stay safe. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. We love you. Use Zoom. Holidays over Zoom are gonna suck. I don't care. Do it anyway, damn it. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you all for listening to Tales from the Waystone. We would like to send a huge thank you out to our friend Shawnee Jang for creating our lovely theme music, which, behind the scenes, we sent her the theme music from The Good Place and said, hey, we want something that is a little reminiscent of this. And she did such a great job. Shawnee's amazing, guys. <laughs> Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to and have the means to do so, we would love it if you would support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show, our show notes, a whole bunch of other random stuff that so far no one has wanted, which we've put a lot of effort into, guys. There's a couple of extra podcasts that are of varying quality up on that Patreon, but they're kind of locked behind a paywall, and if you reach out to us, we might adjust that so that it's better for other people. Who knows? Talk to us, guys, at Waystone Pod. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Excuse me. We need to teach our niece to sneeze like you.